How would the Lord grade our church? It's a question I invite you into this morning. I'd like you to grade Emmanuel Bible Church. On the back of your bulletin is a report card. The left-hand column lists different lines. You can put in a percentage or a grade on those lines. And the right-hand column lists different proficiencies or different skills. Now, as you do this this morning, try to be impartial. Try to be objective. Because I know some of you will never give anyone an A. <laughs> no one's 100%, right? No one's perfect. Jesus. Well, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Others of you will give all A's. Hardly ever give a B. I mean, no one's feelings are getting hurt this morning, right? Well, somewhere in between there probably lies the truth of where we are as a church. And however you lean on either end of that spectrum, maybe somewhere in between, we, we definitely need a guide for this. We need an objective guide by which we can measure a church. And the Bible provides this. This morning, we will go to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And in the first few verses of this letter, Paul expresses his admiration. The church at Thessalonica, this church stands out as a cut above others. To use modern lingo, we would say this church is cooking with gas. This church, she hits it out of the park. This church is firing on all cylinders. As Paul commends her, and we work our way through these verses, we will find the characteristics of a healthy church. And this gives us then a pattern to follow or a model to imitate. It gives us that standard for comparison. So today, we do some introspection. And at lunch, as been mentioned, we're going to review a proposed budget for next year. Certainly, it's an exercise in numbers and projections and estimates. We understand that. But, but it's more than that. It's a time to celebrate what God has done and what God may very well do next year. It's incredible to imagine what, what God can do through this church next year and the years beyond. But for now, we need to evaluate our performance. And though you will function this morning as a teacher sitting there with pen in hand, marking up the grades. Keep in mind, you're also the student. You see, every church is the summer for parts. Each of us as individuals is one part of the bigger unit, part of the whole. Uh, each of you are one Christian that's part of the, the, the corporate body at Emmanuel. So while we evaluate the church... In a way, we also evaluate ourselves and that unique individual role that each of us plays in these questions. Now, to be clear, we're all at a different place, all at a different progress, and God is working in each of us individually, then together as he builds his church. And for Paul, this church at Thessalonica, this church, it meant the world to him. He founded the church on his second missionary journey. He was there but three weeks, and they ran him out of town. Not the church, but the city. 
Perhaps you've seen some of those nature shows where the, the cub or the hatchling, it, it gets separated from its mom. It happens very early, almost prematurely. Mom's out of the picture. What's going to happen to this, to this young animal? And so it was in Thessalonica. What will become of this church? She's without her father, this caring, nurturing parent who planted her and wanted to see her grow. She's but a seedling. Now, we know Paul held these concerns. All the while, he wasn't one to really mope around about it. He had gone on after those three weeks to preach a sermon. It was the perfect sermon in Athens. He preached to a mixed response. He then moved on to Corinth, and while in Corinth, the Lord appeared to Paul. His words, I believe, indicated Paul's condition. In Acts chapter 18, verse 9, Do not be afraid any longer, Paul. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. Paul held a concern for his churches. And as he continued on, faithfully following the Lord, there was a knock at the door. And it was a man named Salvanus and a man named Timothy. And they came and brought news from Thessalonica and it was great news. Paul, the church flourishes. And it was probably right about this time that Paul picked up his pen. Probably the first letter he's written of the epistles we have. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Salvanus and Timothy. To the church of Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. That takes us then to the report card, looking at our first category this morning. What is a healthy church like? Well, a healthy church masters the basics. And these first few verses we learned at Thessalonica, they mastered the basics. Any kind of meaningful growth, any kind of creative innovation, any type of promising future, it's built upon the basics. How about us? Are we proficient in the basics, in the fundamentals? In verse 3, we read of a faith, hope, and love. These three attitudes tend to, to represent a bar for Christian living. These are goals that you and I seek to attain in the Lord. But in this passage, it's a little different. The emphasis in this passage lies on the actions they produce. In fact, one Bible translation, the NIV, I believe it translates this very well. It's very helpful in communicating this. Listen to how the NIV words it. Your work produced by faith. Your labor prompted by love. Your endurance inspired by hope. 
Indeed, it was our Lord who said that each tree is known by its fruit. In Thessalonica, there are bright blossoms hanging on the trees in the church. Their yield was a work produced by faith. This doesn't mean that their work saved them. It doesn't mean that they received the gospel and then they started to get busy working for Jesus. Then they were really saved. No, that's not what he's saying. They came to faith in Jesus. They went to work for Jesus. This church is an anthill. There are people scurrying and running about every here, which way. They're all using their gifts in whatever way God has gifted them. They are busy working for Jesus. How do you grade Emmanuel? Are there works produced by faith? How about a labor prompted by love? That word work, that word labor, they're, they're close in meaning. But that word labor here is going to go even further than work. It has to do with a toil, with a difficulty. Kent Hughes would call this a spiritual sweat. If there was a line that's swinging upward and, and, and work is down here, um, as, as you go up in the direction of intensity, labor will be up here. We might say that, that to work is to dig with a shovel, to labor is to swing a pickaxe. This church is working hard for Jesus Christ. There's a sweat about them. There's a fatigue about them. Some churches would, would get so far and they'd say, you know, we, we've done enough, we need to call it. They keep on going. And we see in this passage that it was love that powered their motor. In fact, I think this is the only way to keep going. Because you and I can, can work and we can grow tired and we can get fatigued in our service, but what do we do then? When you and I become physically exhausted and when we, we are emotionally drained, when we've overbooked our calendar, does love keep us going? That's what happened in Thessalonica. How do you grade Emmanuel? Is there a labor prompted by love? There's another section next in this report card, and it speaks of an endurance inspired by hope. To endure would be to hold out, to bear up. For this to be possible, there must be some kind of pressure, some kind of squeeze put on the church. And in these moments, the natural inclination of the will will be challenged. The default mode is to simply cave in or, or, or break away or, or, or give up. For the Thessalonians, this came in the form of persecution. In verse 7, you see the word tribulation. The Thessalonians are endure by hope. And to be clear, this hope isn't some kind of groundless wish. This is a steadfast confidence in Jesus Christ. They are convinced that Jesus is coming again. And as the screws tighten, they endure. That's the endurance of hope. How do you grade Emmanuel? What is our response to trial? Who do we hope in? Now, moving along on these next few lines on the report card, beginning with transformed by the gospel, we set our sights on the centrality of our faith, and that is, in fact, the gospel message. Are we transformed by the gospel? 
specifically, have we embraced one another as family? You know, when you and I come to faith, you and I are adopted into the family of God. In John chapter 1, verse 12, as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed. That means then that spiritually, positionally, you and I are all children of God. And God then takes his children, universal throughout all time, and in each era he places them in specific families and local churches. Now, to be clear, you and I don't lose our identity as sons and daughters of our Father, but each one of us becomes part of something bigger than ourselves. In verse 3, Paul calls God, quote, our God and Father. Not his, not the Thessalonians, not mine, not yours. He says, our. It's that family relationship. It's that unified whole. There's this corporate aspect that forever becomes part of this new life in Jesus Christ. 22 times across 1 Thessalonians and then into 2nd, he calls this church brethren. That word says something about the relationship of the Christian to one another, and it says something about the relationship horizontally or vertically up to God. You may have noticed as well, as you've gotten going in the local church, that she contains all kinds of personalities and all kinds of preferences and all kinds of practices. And let me tell you something, that God does that on purpose. God does not want a church filled with clones where everybody is the same way, doing the same things all the time. Listen to the different types of people and the different commands given to the Thessalonians. This is over in chapter 5, verse 14. God is working out our sanctification as we do life together. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Are we doing this? I believe the Thessalonians did this. Later in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul's going to affirm their love for one another. He says, we give thanks because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you towards one another grows even greater. In fact, when one among their number passed away, and went to be with the Lord, they grieved as a community. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as those who have no hope. That is a normal reaction to the passing away of a family member, to to grieve the loss. So this church bonded for all their differences, and we read of some of them. they, They united in Jesus Christ. They embraced one another as family. How are we doing? Paul wrote as well in this passage of God's sovereign love that God is sovereign to set his love upon whomever he wishes. We read it in verse 4. Paul gave thanks for the beloved brothers chosen by God. 
Later in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, God chose them from the beginning for salvation. And God, who is sovereign, chooses when and, and, and where to either withhold affliction or allow affliction. God destined Paul and the church for afflictions. That's chapter 3, verse 3. This is similar, as we may think back, uh, to people like Job or, or, or people like Jeremiah. Uh, maybe this is Abraham with Isaac. But praise God, he delivers us from the worst of it. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do we believe that this morning? That all good things come from God? Our salvation being chief among them. Do we believe that's true of the bad things? The suffering and persecution that we might endure? Do we really believe that God works all things together for good? What's our grade on faith in God's sovereign love? You can fill in hallelujah there, John. You don't need to do A through F. Hallelujah (laughs) is an appropriate way to fill that in. (laughs) Now, as I mentioned, we're speaking in the section of the transforming work of the gospel, and and, and one change that we experience is something called um, regeneration. There is a true conversion that happens when one encounters the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you picked up on that as you heard from Paul in verse 5. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And to be clear, the gospel did come to them in word. Faith comes from hearing and from hearing the word of Christ. But it didn't come alone. Paul says the gospel came in power, not in cleverness, not in charisma. It's the power of God that saves, not the words of man. In fact, it's not up to the Thessalonians to save their friends or to save their family members. That's God's work. And God empowers the message that they are charged to share. I mean, think about the people writing this letter, Paul and Silas and Timothy. These guys are MVP candidates in the early church. Keeping in mind that Paul stoned Christians. Silas was a Roman. Timothy feared men. That is to say that their success, to whatever extent they experienced it, it had to rest upon God. There is no other explanation for it. The gospel relies on on no man. That we know their names, that they are famous, that is because of God. Paul said as well that this gospel came to them in the Holy Spirit. He's the third person of the Trinity. Later in the book of Titus, we learn that God saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is instrumental in the change that takes place in the depths of our soul. And that means that the Holy Spirit takes the spoken gospel and he changes the heart at that deep spiritual level that happened to the Thessalonians. The Spirit regenerated. We read here as well that the gospel came with a full conviction. Conviction in this context, this word means certainty or a full assurance. Now, you and I know that the Spirit's role elsewhere, in John chapter 16, for example, is to convict. 
But that's a different Greek word. That's a different Greek meaning. In verse 5, this gospel arrives with a complete certainty. Chapter 2, verse 13, we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Does the gospel perform its work at Emmanuel? Are we a church of, of true conversions, strong in the fundamentals and transformed by the gospel? Do we master the basics? Well, the second section there concerns examples. In verses 6 through 8, we are asking ourselves, are we an example that's worth imitating? The Thessalonians were, Paul writes to them, verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. Good examples imitate good examples. Uh, we might call this the cycle of Christian discipleship. Where a grandfather is imitating the great-grandfather, and the father is imitating the grandfather, and the son is imitating the father. It is passed down one good example unto the next. You see, in verse 6, Paul complimented the Thessalonians. They imitated us, meaning Paul and Salvanus and Timothy. He said they imitated the Lord. I mean, can you think of a better compliment to get? How about us? What is our example? Are we a church worth imitating? I think to dig down even deeper here, I think in verses 6 and 7, we find some specifics, a few habits of worthy example. We see right away there that a good example suffers well. Remember, this church received the word in great tribulation. This was hard on them. They experienced an oppression or, or a persecution even some level of distress or some kind of suffering. Paul and Jesus both provide examples for this church. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul will write that he suffered and underwent mistreatment in Philippi. Same chapter, verse 15, we learn that the Jews killed Jesus. The Thessalonians endured persecution. Acts chapter 17 describes their reception of the gospel. The book of Acts records the spread of the gospel, the, the planting, the, the growth of the early church. And in verse 5, there's a mob that comes to the home of a recent convert named Jason. This is taking place in Thessalonica. And by all accounts, it seems like this mob is jealous. And they go down to the marketplace and hire some agorias, these are bullies for hire. Literally, they're marketplace people. And they come up to Jason's house and they drag him out along with some other Thessalonian Christians and they take him to the city bosses. The men who have upset the world have come here, they say, and Jason welcomed them. Kind of a ridiculous charge. 
But then they say something to make them sweat. They all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. Now, Rome will not like that. Caesar is the sovereign. He is the king. And Jason and company, they endured persecution this particular time. They made it out okay. And I'm assuming this morning that you have not been dragged down to the courthouse. And if you have, they probably didn't think too highly of the ruffians that took you there. Because you and I live in a nation that allows for a free practice of our religion. In fact, the founding fathers understood that to found a nation, you need some kind of barometer or you need some kind of a moral standard, and they turned to Christianity for that. They turned to the Bible. It was the norm to adopt Christian morals. This has been true throughout the majority of our history. It's even the norm to profess the label. But even though now you and I live in a time different from the Thessalonians, we should still expect some rub, some kind of bristle from the world. There ought to be some animosity or some kind of friction. You see, for every church attempting to live for the glory of God, there's going to be persecution, a tribulation on, on some level. That's not that we need to go looking for this. A faithful New Testament church, well, it finds them. So do we suffer well? This whole discussion of persecution and suffering and tribulation it can be a little unsettling. But now something unexpected happens in our text. Something unexpected comes with this. Something called joy. A good example exudes joy. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? The world can't grasp this. That people who are suffering and being persecuted, they're rejoicing. The world has its own equation. There's a correlation. When good things happen, there's happiness. When good things happen, there's happiness. When good things happen, there's happiness. When bad things happen, there's sadness. When tribulation happens, a lot of sadness. But suffering, for the Christian, brings joy. The Thessalonians received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And there's no other explanation for this other than God has done this. The Holy Spirit indwelling the soul of the believer produces joy in persecution. I'm reminded of Peter and other apostles in Acts chapter 5. They're arrested and they're dragged before the court. And they're walking away with bloody backs, flogging for the, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're rejoicing that they've been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. As persecution increased, joy increased. So is Emmanuel a joy-filled church? Not are we happy, not can we smile? Are we joy-filled? 
at the risk of complicating your grading on this one, it does seem like it's directly linked to suffering. A good example serves faithfully. And we get the impression that the church at Thessalonica was more of a lighthouse than they were a matchstick. Their zeal for Christ, you couldn't cork in a bottle. Their example beamed to believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That's a lot of territory. Macedonia included, to the east, Philippi. You're familiar with the letter Paul wrote there to the Philippians. Berea is just to the west. We like what is said of the Bereans in Acts chapter 6. They receive the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily. To the south, Achaia included Athens. Paul preached that great sermon in Acts 17 to them. And even Corinth. There's two New Testament letters written to them. So from this model church, from Thessalonica, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Outside the Bible, that word is used, sounded forth. It's used of a trumpet or of a a rolling thunder. It's a thunder that's reverberating across the sky. The primary means Paul writes of here is is evangelism. The Thessalonians were an evangelistic church. Listen to what one commentator wrote about them. And just think about us as you hear this. The church at Thessalonica was so located on the Ignatian Highway, linking the east with the west, and at the head of the Thermaic Gulf, connecting with harbors all over the known world, it was so located that news could spread very quickly to regions far and near. All the believers in Thessalonica had to do was avail themselves of the opportunities which their strategic location afforded. I like that. All they had to do was walk or talk. All they had to do was make some movement in any direction because God had so strategically placed his church, like he does with all of his churches, like he does with us. He placed them in a place at a time when they could just walk outside or spread the word to this guy who's going over here or send a missionary down the street there. It was prime real estate for the gospel. What's our grade? How are we doing so far? See, I think we have an opportunity here. Jesus is always redeeming people. He is always redeeming his people. Every day, new souls are being saved. And you know what these new souls need? They need a place to come and worship. They need one of those local church families where they can come and be part. You can be that home. You can be that people. And I think that as the world grows darker, faithful churches shine brighter. Is this the place where people come to find godly examples? Is this a church that's a destination for suffering Christians? Is there a joy that fills this room that spills out the doors right into town? It's completely possible. We can be a church worthy of imitation. Now for that final section of the report card. Are we ready for tomorrow? Are we ready for 2023? Verse 9, they themselves report about us 
what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Word on the street, the Thessalonians gave up their idols. When they received the gospel, they discarded their idols. That could mean, of course, little stone and wooden statues, small figures. They dumped them in the trash. But the New Testament's going to paint idolatry with a broader brush than just that. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul declares, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. How is greed idolatry? Greed is not some kind of a figure or statue you can place on your fireplace mantle. Greed is covetousness. Greed is a heart issue. Greed is desiring something more than God. It's an affection or a desire. It's anything that occupies the throne of our hearts, the throne that belongs to God. That is idolatry. That is an idol. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Paul's writing here of Israel's sin at Mount Sinai. You and I know about the golden calf, right? Clearly that is an idol. But that's not what he calls idolatry here, is it? He lists eating and drinking and playing. These are all commonplace activities. But they pursued them with an affection that belongs to God alone, making them idolatrous. Now, some believe in this passage that this playing has sexual overtones. Sex may well be the idol of verse 9, as Paul writes to the Thessalonians. And like other New Testament churches, the Thessalonians, they were part of uh, a, a Uh, They were a city in the midst of a Greek fertility religion. And to be a pagan in this time meant that you may very well have a religion that, that blended sex with worship. So here you have these New Testament Christians trying to find their way, trying to come out of that old lifestyle. And what you've noticed so far as we've read these first few verses is that Paul really heaps a lot of praise on this church. But later in chapter 4, he's going to speak in a bit of a different tone. There, he's going to command the church to abstain from sexual immorality. Maybe this is that idolatry that they were putting off, striving to put off, attempting to put off. Maybe this sin followed them into the Christian life. In some form, I believe that you and I all have some kind of sin that we struggle or some sin that's followed us into the Christian life. We might call it our our sheer con or our wicked witch pursuing us into this Christian life, attempting to upset us, destroy us, undermine our walk with Christ. They stalk us as we journey into glory. When you and I come to faith, we turn from idols 
And with some idols, you and I, we need to keep turning to God. Repentance is an ongoing activity in the Christian life. It's a turning from sin and a turning to God. Habitual. And the great news is that we are forgiven in Jesus Christ and given help by Jesus Christ as we live this Christian life, turning away from idols, turning to God. But here's the thing to the point today. We can't be ready for what God has tomorrow if we're stuck in today. If we're stuck, cemented in in the mire of idolatry, it's very difficult to be effective for God tomorrow. You may notice if you struggle with sin, there's a certain coolness between you and God. The Holy Spirit is grieved to use a word from the Bible. In other words, there's enough to worry about. It's difficult to be used effectively by God for his kingdom. So are we repenting of sin? We're getting near the bottom of a report card. Are we a church that is repenting of sin, putting off those idols to be used effectively by God? And lastly, what about the past? What's our relationship to the former years? I noticed here that the Thessalonians were a very future-oriented church. I estimate that about 20 to 25% of the verses in 1 Thessalonians have to do with the future, with end times events. Now, if you know anything about this church, their orientation wasn't perfect. In chapter 4, they misunderstand Christian death, what happens when someone dies, Later in 2 Thessalonians 2, they're going to fear God's judgment had already arrived. And if you put that together and you think about what else Paul says, Paul addresses idleness taking place in the church. I think they got so confused on the timing of Jesus that they just quit working and were waiting. So the church isn't perfect. We're not perfect. But we do see that they worked hard to master the basics. And they were an example to imitate. And they were a church ready for tomorrow. So how about us? Are we unshackled from the past? Are we ready to move forward or are we staring in the rearview mirror? Are we excited about next year or are we just thinking about the past? Look, I think there is a tremendous opportunity for the church who does these things. 1 Thessalonians bears that out. And I want you to look now at the final box on your report card. If we enact what we've read this morning, if we put into motion next year what we discussed today, what grade would we receive? This is the easiest one to answer on the report card. You know, I mentioned earlier that at lunch today, we're going to review our our church budget for next year. And yes, it is a spreadsheet that contains categories with numbers, but it's much, much more than that. It is an application of today's message. It's a picture of what could be next year. And even now, we're finalizing a strategic plan that's going to utilize and harness those funds for the glory of God and put plans and ministries into action for next year. And here's what I want to do. 
I want to put my heart into it. And I want to invite the Lord into it. And I want to come to him with open hands, asking that he would direct our paths. And I want you to come along. I want you to join me in what we do next year and in the years to come. And I want to build on what we did next year, this year into next year. And in just a few years, you're going to celebrate 75 years as a church. And I want the candles on the cake to illumine your smile because you're able to look back on what the past few years have been. And you can say that the past five years have been our best ever because we did what they did at Thessalonica. And then I want us to keep going. I want us to pour ourselves out as a church for Jesus Christ. Fatigued, maybe suffering, but doing so always with the joy of Jesus Christ. I want us to celebrate 100 years. And years after that, then I want to retire. (laughs) Not because I want to, but because I have to. Because my mind is failing and my body's breaking down. That is what it means to live the Christian life. And each one of you, each one of us, can do this together as we step out of this year and into next year and all the good that God has for us in those years to come. Will you join me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for redeeming each soul in this room. Thank you for loving them, each one of them, with a depth of love that none of us can fully understand. I pray for them and I pray for us as a body of Christ, that you would knit our hearts together in love, first and foremost for you and for your son Jesus, and then for one another. And that you would move us forward in the years ahead into hard things, into easy things, but into things, Lord, that build your kingdom. Lord, we love you and we want to be used by you and serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.